Chuck, I'm cold. <laughs> Keep me warm. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 57 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Ash Dryden. Hello from Madison, Wisconsin. Eric Davis. Hello. Uh, Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we're going to be talking about fixed bids. How, how much have you guys done with fixed bids? I used to do them a lot more than I do them now. I actually uh, try to not do fixed bids. Is, is there a reason for that? Yeah, it, it never really sticks really well with a fixed bid. I think that having, I mostly do hourly now, and, and I prefer hourly because it allows the client to kind of expand or contract their needs uh, without feeling limited by the contract, and it makes me feel less mean. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, so I don't have to constantly say, well, that wasn't really part of the original contract. I can give them what they need and what they want without having to have that difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. How about you guys, Eric and Jeff? I've done a few very small fixed bid projects, but by and large, I'm mostly hourly. Mostly for the same reasons Ash has. uh, And beyond that, it's really hard to get a scope uh, tightened down enough that makes it comfortable for me to try to bid on something for me i don't know maybe 20 percent, if that um i actually have a different reason i i i I don't mind fixed bids but it has to the project has to be very specific there has to be a lot of trust between me and the client first off so that you know i can trust that they're going to understand what scope creep is and we don't have those problems of discussions uh the other side of it is the project has to be uh for lack of a better term very cookie cutter in that you know it's something I've done before or there's not a lot of technical risk on the project um if there is a lot of technical risk or a lot of unknowns then I basically say like you're going to have to be hourly because we can't I can't guess this up front and commit to it yeah I've done a couple of fixed bids myself they were less than $1000 in fact I think both of them were $500 a piece and so and and it was enough work that it wasn't that risky. Um, one of them I really actually didn't get paid on. And it was because uh, I was setting up some software, some third-party software for somebody on their server. And he was unhappy with the um, with the result because there was a bug in the software that I set up. But I didn't actually write it. So anyway, so it, it's kind of interesting. I haven't done major fixed bit projects, though I might pick one up here pretty soon. So I've done one. It was com- it was more of a support contract, but it was you know fixed amount, fixed cost on the client end, fixed time frame, and semi fixed deliverables. But you know deliverables it could be kind of varying in how much work I'd have to do, um, and it was a pretty significant size of the project. But they didn't actually use that much of it, so it ended up you know a pretty successful one. Like they didn't go and do a lot of scope creep or go over on my own cost accounting for the hours. But I'm trying to think. I've had a couple fixed bid projects that were. Pretty decent amounts, maybe a month of part-time-ish work. Those were with a client I really trusted, and we had a lot of good relationship before that. So, like, they brought up stuff that actually was, like, kind of scope creep out of scope. And so we actually shelved that and did that on a later stage. I don't remember if it was fixed bid or not. But, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing with fixed bid. you got to be careful. 
you know, you don't get into a fixed bid for a six month full time development, you know, six, seven figure contract, because that just gives you a lot of opportunity to just kind of completely blow your bid out the water. Right. So the, the risks on the fixed bids, um, Ash brought up, you know, that, you know, she wants to make sure that they get good value on the money they're putting down. And so there's the, there's the, there's some risk there that, you know, you bid them $10,000 and they only get $5,000 worth of value and are, are unhappy. And then there's the other risk where you bid it for 10000 and you do $20,000 worth of work and uh, you're locked into that because of the contract. Right. And you also have to watch though, like hourly has its own risks. I mean, you as a the consultant have a risk of bidding a project that's hourly and the client not using your hours. And so then you have, you're contractually obligated to be available to do work for them, but they're not using your hours. You now have idle time. And so you, you would take on a risk of, you know, bidding, we'll say a $10,000 project, but only able to bill a thousand of that because they kind of idled the rest of the time and fix it kind of reverses that. But you, like you said, have the risk of you might do $20,000 of work, but you're only going to get paid 10,000. Or it could be that you do a thousand dollars worth of work and you get paid 10,000. And so it's, you know, it's, it's risk transferring. Yep. That's a good point. And I, I can definitely see why uh, a lot of clients prefer fixed bid. I've just never really had it go as well as I do with hourly. I feel like I'm generally not as happy. They're not as happy because I have to stay within a certain number of hours very strictly. And that might mean that something that they really wanted that, you know, took more time than expected or it kind of bloomed into something a lot bigger, they can't get. Uh, so I can understand a lot of clients wanting to be able to say, okay, well, we budgeted X amount of dollars for this and that's what we expect and we know what we're going to get out on the other end. But I feel like the amount of time that that actually happens is rare. Yeah, I, I have a guy that I've been talking to and uh, he, he keeps, I keep coming back around to hourly and then he keeps coming back around to uh, fixed bid. And I think that's exactly it. He wants to be able to just say, this is going to cost me X dollars. And at the end of it, I'm going to have Y product. And it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, I keep explaining to him that when I do a fixed bid, you know, I'm, I'm basically bidding everything out, giving him my, uh, my worst case estimate plus a buffer. <laughs> and if, if we go with hourly, then he's probably going to cost less. But at the same time, he's more comfortable with that because that's the way he's dealt with things in the past. How do you, I'm, I'm curious, how do you take payment for that? Like, do you have them pay a down payment and then uh, just have milestones and they pay on those? Or is it all one lump sum? So I've, I've heard several ways of going and they all have their trade-offs. I mean, one is, is that you collect half at the beginning and half at the end. And I was talking to a local design firm that had some dev work that they were looking at sending my way that we are still uh, negotiating on. But uh, yeah, that was their deal is, you know, we'll, we'll pay you half at the beginning, half at the end. I've also heard, heard it based on milestones. I've heard of people doing it based on, um, you know, basically breaking it down into multiple fixed bids per month. So you have each, each milestone is worth a certain amount of money. And then right. you can change things as you go on the later milestones, you know, cause you just negotiate a new bid on each set of things. Yeah, another one I've heard is like 50% upfront and then 50% a month later. So it's not 50% at the end, but it's like into the project a little bit. Um, that's a bit better for the consultant because you're getting cash flow earlier. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I do really like the idea of uh, breaking up in, into smaller bids because then as they get as they get more information, then they can still kind of change direction and not, not have it kill the project because you're locked into building something else that they now figured out they don't need. Yeah, and that's what I do a lot of. Like, I've gotten fixed bids that would be the larger, like, three or four months of development. And I would say, look, I mean, I, I'm happy to do this with you, but there's so many unknowns and we're going to lock ourselves into something that no one's going to like. What we'll do is I'm going to break it up into phases of like four weeks or something. We'll do a fixed bid for that. And then around week three, we can reevaluate what we've already done, stuff we've learned. And I'll do a fixed bid for phase two and basically keep that approach. And so it's kind of iterative in a way, but still fixed bid and that they can steer it at, you know, big major milestones and they don't have to worry about, you know, dumping all this money and time into something that they really don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one one other thing that I really want to point out with fixed bids is that um, in a lot of cases, you'll wind up making, you know, two, three, four, five times your uh, regular hourly rate, and your client will be totally happy with the work you did, in which case, you know, it seems like it's a win-win. They got the value out that they wanted, and, you know, you got paid way more than you would have gotten paid hourly. Um, do you guys feel like that's fair, mostly fair, not really fair? I think it's completely fair. I mean, it, if the client got the value they wanted for the fixed price that they were willing to pay, that's fair. You know, you can start as you get into like really extreme examples where, you know, say you're getting $1,000 an hour that it might not be fair, but it really comes down to is the client still happy that you deliver the value they wanted? I mean, you can look at the government contracting. I mean, Evan's not here, so he can't speak about it, but, you know, people there are paying millions of dollars for toilets and stuff. So is that fair? Well, probably not, but. You know, you got to look at it from the perspective of the person who's getting the value. And as long as you're being honest and not like scamming them and, you know, putting a fake facade over the software that actually doesn't work behind the scenes, you know, I think you're fine. Yeah, and I think from our perspective, the the fairness kind of evens out because I think that there will also be fixed bid projects that you you'll be making less than your regular regular hourly. So from our perspective, it might even out, but. I, I don't know. I, I have different feelings about how on the client side, I, I would prefer to, uh, if there's a way to deliver as much value as they paid for it, like if they feel like they got $1,000 an hour worth of value out of something that I'm doing, then I definitely feel okay about that. But if they feel like they got less, then I don't know. I, I, I prefer that things in, in an ideal world feel fair to everyone. Well, well, I actually have two things with that. One, when we're looking at it value, like as a consultant, we're also in a way putting our own judgment on it of what I, Eric, pay $2,000 for the software that took me an hour to write. I wouldn't, but someone else who doesn't know software might because it, you know, it might be completely out of their realm, it might be too complex. So that's something you have to think about as you're looking at it through your own biases. And so that could be a factor in trying to determine, you know, is this fair? Even beyond. I know you've got another point, but even beyond the would you do it because you know how to do it, but would a client pay you a thousand dollars an hour for a week to write some piece of software that saved fifteen of their salespeople twenty hours a week or forty hours a month or whatever ends up being and save them a hundred grand a year or two hundred and fifty grand a year? I mean, when you start looking at a bigger picture and not on an hourly basis, but how the value you're impacting their bottom line for some period in their future, I think it it works out far in the 
hopefully it works out for in the client's favor. But I mean, there is Alan Weiss is probably more outspoken about it than anybody. But it's one of those things that you have to be able to to look at yourself and not laugh when you say that you're worth a thousand dollars an hour or five hundred or three hundred or whatever that bids out to be. Yeah, I think he was the one who had that phrase. Like, if you don't have the confidence to look at yourself in the mirror and say with a straight face that this project will cost fifty thousand dollars. He says, like, you need to start working on your own, I don't know, what is it, motivation or confidence building and all that stuff. Yeah, I think the trap that I keep falling into with some of this is that um, I value my time at a certain price. And you guys are talking about this here. Um, but uh, since I tend to value my pro- my time at a certain price, and that's, you know, that's my hourly rate or, you know, however I decide that it, it comes out, when I wind up getting more than that, that's when I start thinking, okay, you know, did I really give them that kind of value? And I don't recognize that, yeah, I may have saved them hundreds of thousands of dollars and they only paid me, you know, tens of tens of thousands of dollars or five, you know, five grand or whatever it costs for the project. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a good thing to do as a person. I mean, to kind of evaluate that and kind of question it, but it also, you know, it's the cost side of the equation. Like, like what Jeff was saying, it doesn't matter on the cost side. It's the revenue side. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, a house is wood, plastic, and a bit of metal, but the value of a house is, you know, a lot more. You know, some of them are worth millions of dollars, even though they're made of very basic components that are very inexpensive and very, um, you know, commoditized. But the value of having a house or having a dwelling, the benefits you get from that, that far outweighs the cost of the materials and even the cost of the labor that's put into it. Yeah. I think the hardest bit of psychology to get out for me, and I think a lot of people, is just that there's this natural opinion that when somebody's going to bill you hourly, that they're going to take as long as they possibly can to get it done, to make as much money as they can. I mean, the fixed bid type thing, if a client can get it scoped and you can get it scoped and make it all feel not that risky, I mean, they have a single line item they can put in their budget and they have an end to it. And with software, especially clients that have worked with contractors before, I mean, I'm sure a bunch of them have a bad taste in their mouth and maybe I'm just overly pessimistic, but software never gets done. And it can just go on and on forever, especially if you're not trying to rein the client in and make sure they know exactly what it's going to cost them to do what they're trying to do. Mm. I actually worked with the client that there were two contractors that were working with them, and then there was a firm that they were working with that was a foreign firm. And uh, the guy in charge of the project basically um, said that about the foreign firm was that, since we're paying them hourly, you know, it's going to take as long as it can and still be reasonable. And so, um, yeah, I can definitely see that. And what I was going to say, um, the second point earlier is if, if you, uh, we'll just use a really good example. You know, if I charged a million dollars and basically did the work for that in 10 hours and the client was happy with it, you know, that's an extreme example. But if I feel like that's not fair, if I feel I didn't deliver a million dollars of value, you know, whether or not it, I did or not, that's different. But if I feel that way, what I've done on projects is I've went back to the client and said, Hey, I actually have a little bit of extra wiggle room in the budget or in the time. Is there another feature too that I can take a crack at and see if I can implement with this remainder? And therefore I can give you an additional amount of value without you paying any cost. And I've done that at least two times. And each time the client's like, yeah, like here's a couple other things we're thinking about for phase two. And 
Um, I know one case specifically, like I was actually able to implement like one or two bigger features and I still kept my cost and my amount fine on my fixed bid, but they got an even additional amount of value above and beyond what they paid. You know, it's the, it's the little things, and it, I mean, it's slimy to suggest this, but I mean, even if you could do that in a normal circumstance and say, hey, I've got a little bit of extra time, because no client expects you to tell them you've got extra time or extra budget. I mean, it's a huge win mm-hmm. uh, from the client's perspective of you if you come back and say, hey, I can give you this a little bit more. I know we've talked about that a bunch before, but it's always worth remembering. Yeah, I, and I like too that I think that that increases loyalty and and trust, and they're more likely to because the vast majority of my clients are referral based. They're a lot more likely to refer other people to you because they feel like they have that trust, and and uh, they know that if they refer someone else to you, and especially if that's a personal relationship that they have or a business relationship that they have, that they won't regret that. Yep. So. I want to talk a little bit about some of these fixed bids. We were we were talking a little bit ago about kind of breaking things up into smaller uh, chunks that get get bid on their own. One of the reasons I like that is because it's easier to nail down all of the specifics that have to be done for that smaller chunk as opposed to a larger chunk. How do you know when you have the specification or the statement of work uh, nailed down to the point where you're not going to get killed by scope creep? When the planets align, (laughs) (laughs) just about never. (laughs) Yeah, you're gonna have that risk no matter what. Like it's the what's called uknux, you know, the unknown unknowns. And I, I, mine's a gut feeling. Like I'm like, okay, my gut feels like this is close enough, and I have enough buffer built in. But you're never, you have to get comfortable with it because you're never gonna get it nailed down or perfect. It's, it's gonna change, and you're gonna features are gonna get thrown away. Features will get added. Um, you just have to make sure that you're ready for it and prepared. I think we can break down fixed bid a couple different ways. I know you were talking about smaller pieces, but there are a lot of people that talk about billing by the day, billing by the week, and um, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe services of product. I know Eric does something similar to that. But I mean, there are ways to get closer to fixed bid without going all the way to fixed bid and sort of. I don't know, there are a few firms, I think ThoughtBot does it and a couple other people that bill on a weekly basis and I don't know if they track time, I can't remember the details, but I think there are a couple ways to get closer to fixed bid without going all the way to fixed bid. Yeah, and that's where you kind of expand your, the time you're using, like most people, they say I bill hourly. Well, technically they're billing a variable amount of time that just happens to be an hour is their unit. I've seen people that have day rates and weekly rates, and that gives you a larger unit of calendar time that you're billing in for something. And like, I know a guy, he's, he has a weekly rate. And so his weekly rate is X. And that's what it is. If you need him for one day, two day, three day, or, you know, five days plus overtime, like that's his rate stays the same. And so he can technically go to a project and say, this is a four week project and give them a fixed bid, but it's still in his accounting it's still kind of variable because it's i have four units of time at x dollars hmm. that, that's interesting that's an interesting way to go i mean and if you really think about it if, if you have a fixed bid contract that's say six months and you're bidding uh, 60 grand you're actually just saying that's still a variable rate the the unit of time is six months and the cost per unit of time is sixty thousand. and so yeah it's all all of this really is is just trying to figure out the time and the amount, the the cost and getting that so that the risk to the consultant and the risk to the client is in a way where basically people can agree to it. 
So the next question is, what happens when you do run into scope creep? So let's say you've you've estimated a reasonably large project, you get halfway through the scope, and then they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't need half of the rest of this stuff. We actually need other stuff. I mean, the sticklers and the hard asses and probably the successful business people will say then you renegotiate or probably that you renegotiate, I imagine. Unless yeah. you can explain to them the trade-offs. But even then, if you're going to change something that dramatically or, I mean, I don't know what that dramatically scale works out to be, but... I think at some point you have to decide for yourself how much you're going to let somebody change the scope, whether in cutting something out or adding something in before you just renegotiate the contract. Another thing really to be careful if you do allow scope creep, if your contract says you're delivering A, B, and C, but C is deleted and you add D, you are now kind of in violation of contract. And so I, at the very least, send them a you know, amendum or whatever saying, we have changed this contract, cost is the same, C is removed, D is added, just so you have a paper trail. Yeah, I, I, t- I, I absolutely agree there. And even if it's something small, then they can't come back to you and say, well, you said you would deliver C, and it's still in the contract and blah, 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 blah. And, and yep. so, you, you know, it's like, look, this is so that we can, you know, we, we cover each other, you know. I, I don't have expectation to get paid for you know, C and D, and you don't have an expectation that I will complete C and D. And uh, you can kind of move ahead that way. And if you make the addenda pretty uh, painless, then it shouldn't be a big deal. It's just, well, we need the signature before we can move ahead with D. Yeah, I actually have a clause in my contract that that specifies that like this contract only covers what's stated in this contract. And if you want work above and beyond this, then another contract is needed because I've had clients in the past that will get 80% done and they'll do one of two things. Either I don't really want the last 20%. um, Can we do this instead? Or they'll want to continue the relationship and basically, you know, add, add more features or whatever. And I'm so, I've been burned so many times by just saying, yeah, that's not a big deal. It's a small thing. And it's not in writing and it's not formalized that just bad things have happened. So it's just a lot easier for me to have very specific contracts for very specific things. And it, you know, it takes three seconds to sign a different contract is basically where I'm coming from. So. Yeah. And, and, th- and that's opposed to hourly where usually your statement of work is, programming against x project and you'll pay me every so often for however many hours i worked yep but as far as you're saying about like knowing if you're gonna allow a scope creep i don't i'm not that stickler on it but basically if something's like 10 percent of the project and they're removing something that i estimated to be the same as what they're adding um i'll allow it like i'll do the legal stuff to make sure it's all legit but you know 10 percent, i'm like okay that's fine i can handle that when they start pushing 20 30 maybe even half the project that's when I really start saying like, okay, we need to kind of stop, rethink what we're doing, maybe renegotiate. And that's why I just overall favor really short fixed bids, like, you know, a week, two weeks of development, because in those cases, it's easy to have a few deliverables. You do those and then you do that reeval and then you do, you know, any new negotiations for the next fixed bid versus doing a four week contract that you have to stop halfway through and reevaluate it. Yeah. And I have to say I've had, um, with with the paperwork, I've actually had a uh, client or two say, "Well, don't you trust me?" 
And my answer is always the same. It's always yes, but I've trusted other people before and it hasn't worked. <laughs> the best answer is yes, I, I trust you. You do you trust me? What's your bank account pin number? And that way I can just take the money right out of your account when you need to instead of even sending you this paperwork and this invoice. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think they would think I was being a little bit smart aleck with them. Oh yeah, that's the point, but it's it's the kind of idea like do you trust me? Well, yeah, yeah. but you know, not everyone has complete trust in everyone else. And if you yeah. can't acknowledge that, that's a different problem. Well, and I've, I've gotten good rapport with people and then been burned by them. So, you know, the only guarantee I have is you give me legal recourse, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I, I have to get paid. And, you know, I've been burned by people I thought I could trust. I'm pretty sure I can trust you. I hope that, it, you know, it works out. But, yeah, we're, we got to do the paperwork. I like to phrase it in that um, contracts aren't about trust. It's making sure that we both understand what we agree to and it's in writing. Uh, and it protects both of us from each other and from ourselves. Um, so I try to do it in a way that makes it seem like non-confrontational and that it's a benefit to them. Mm -hmm. Because I've had the same people say things about signing contracts in general. And I just won't work without a contract. And that's a stipulation for me because I want to make sure that uh, in signing a contract, you agree that you've read all these things and you understand what I expect out of our, our relationship. And you understand um, the kinds of things that you should expect from me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like in the legal sense, a contract is actually just the written form of an agreement. I mean, there's, you know, the verbal contract. If two people agree on something, that is a contract. It's just, it's, you know, it becomes a, his word against his word. And so you can't really, can't enforce that in court as good as having the legal, you know, written down using English language that everyone understands or tr the lawyers understand at the very least. And so, I mean, if someone says, I don't want to sign your contract, I agree, but I, they have a different understanding of the agreement, like that's going to bite you. And that's most of the kickback I've ever gotten on contracts was because the client didn't understand what they wanted or what the contract was saying. And so they were just trying to go off of, uh, I, I agree with you 80%, the 20% I'm not going to talk about right now. And that 20% probably come at the end of the project and cause a whole bunch of headache. So it sounds like Jeff and Ash are... They they tend to prefer more the hourly bids. I tend to as well, but that's more because I'm more comfortable with them. How do you guys tend to push people toward hourly bids if that's your preference versus uh, fixed bids? And when do you push them the other way? I've very rarely had clients actually try to convince me to do fixed bids. Most of them just accept the fact that I propose hourly and that's how they'll pay me. Yeah, and a lot of times when people are coming to me asking about fixed bids, it's because that they have a budget of a certain amount. So uh, we'll we'll kind of work through it together. We'll take a look at what their budget is, and then take a look at their the features that they want, and kind of assign you know estimated hourlies to each one of those, and then just only do the features that fit into that budget. So I haven't really had that much pushback because they're still kind of getting what they want. They're still sticking within their budget, and they understand that only these features will be provided, but you know, the dollar amount is, you know, plus or minus 10% or whatever it is um, within their budget. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same as what you said, Ash. I do tend to push some people toward fixed bids, but it's usually on really small projects that it's just something that I don't really want to track time on and I can just crank it out in a few hours or a day. And so I'll say, hey, just, you know, give me 500 or or $1,000 and I'll, you know, I'll pop whatever it is out and hand it over. 
And, uh, you know, you just put that in a contract. But yeah, for the most part, I tend to push them toward hourly and it's for the same reason. Actually, now that I think about it, I've done a lot more fixed bid than I thought. I used to have a setup project where I'd set up a red miner chili project install on a fresh server. And I just fixed bid that just because it, it wasn't worth the time, the administrative time to have the client see the estimate, approve the estimate, and then me start on it. I just, I knew it would take this amount of time and, you know, basically at my hourly rate, I could just, they sign it, they pay me, I go do the work and be done. Mm-hmm. And see, that's what I'm talking about. The, I guess service is a product. I don't know if there's a better way to describe that. Productized service is what I've heard a lot of. Right. I mean, it's still, it's just the same words just moved around, but yeah. So one other thing I want to, touch on really quickly is that I have actually in the past, and I still do this with a lot of clients, is I'll sit down with their uh, list of things that they want and I'll estimate them out, you know, in the number of hours it's going to take. I usually give them a a best case and a worst case and then just explain to them that it's going to come in somewhere in the middle, um, usually uh, half to two thirds of the way toward the worst case is about where it comes in. It's pretty consistent. And then we, you know, we, we talk over things and sometimes my clients take that to be sort of a fixed bid. And sometimes they take the best case to be sort of a fixed bid. And so then I have to talk them around that. Do you guys have any advice for that sort of thing? Should I just push them toward a fixed bid at that point? Just give them the worst case or what? That's a tough one. Go ahead. I was going to say, I guess it depends on how worst case your worst case is. I mean, if there are so many... And I don't have the discovery process that Ash and apparently Evan do. And it, it would seem that that would lead to a much smoother fixed bid process if that's where you're going to go. But if you're at a point where you're, I mean, you're doing the whole 4X plus another 4X just because this project is crazy weird and there's a whole bunch of gaping holes, then there's probably no way I would ever do a fixed bid. But if there are one or two things that might be tricky because you haven't seen them before and they don't sound that crazy, but you've not done it, then maybe. But I guess it all depends on how far out your worst case is. Out of curiosity um, and kind of related, do you do you guys always provide an estimate up front? And is there any language? Like I, I try to do discovery up front for all of my projects and provide what, what I think will be, um, you know, a very reasonable amount of time for each item and breaking it down. And, and most of the time we've kind of decided on most important to least important. So just in case we run out of, um, you know, we run outside of their budget, the less important things will be dropped off. Do you have any language on your estimates that basically says this is this is an estimate, you know, it's plus or minus 10% or if, you know, we start going a little bit further than what we're expecting, we'll notify you? I say I don't have that in my contract because I, I put the discovery kind of as, you know, part of the project itself. So I don't have estimates. I just have like, I'm going to work on this for a certain amount of time at a rate. When I'm actually working on it and I'm estimating like a feature, I will, a lot of times I'll say like, you know, this is a two to four hour estimate, you know, depending on whatever these variables. And I, because most project management systems only let you track one estimate value, which is stupid. It's the worst thing they can do. Um, I put the high value in there just so the client can see, you know, that's kind of the upper bounds. And then I have an understanding with the client um, that as I get close to that, if I see like, oh, we're going to blow this estimate, I try to stop and notify them, say, hey, this is going to go over. I can keep working on it um, or we can stop it. We can change it or we can up the estimate. And so I kind of do that very flexibly in the project, but it's not on my contract about it. 
So my deal is, is generally up front, I try and estimate out um, how many hours the different features will take. And yeah, I prioritize them according to what the client says is the most important. And I'll sit and talk through them and make sure that I understand more or less what needs to go in there. Um, preferably more, but sometimes they don't really know either, um, which ov- obviously pushes my worst case estimate up. And and I'll put a note on that sometimes that says, I, you know, I don't understand this feature, but from what I do understand, it looks like this, but it may involve these other things. And so because of that, it's higher. But yeah, I don't have any language on there that says this is an estimate only. Um, you know, these estimates may vary one way or the other. I don't have anything on there. I should put that on there, but I don't. And then, yeah, just sometimes explaining, look, this is only an estimate. This is not an actual, you know, promise that I'm going to get it done in this amount of time. Yeah, the, one of the better like project management processes I've seen with someone else was they had a, the estimate and, it, you know, they gave a range of like, say, two to four but they also would give a confidence so they could say like, you know, I'm 95% confident it's going to be in this range or I'm only 10% confident, which would show that this can be really simple or it could be really hard. And that's interesting because that shows the client what the risk of going over budget on that is. Um, and so they can pick the lower risk budgetary items if they're, you know, if you're working in, a, in an hourly or fixed bid. And it's it's interesting. It's, it's a lot more work with estimating. And because estimates really are, they're just guesses, it's kind of hard to make a guess and then have a confidence of the guess. But that might be a little bit of extra data you can try. Yeah, that's interesting. The other thing I usually put on there is a points estimate. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything to them, but then I explain that once we get going, typically we're going to be watching the, the points as opposed to the hours, and that the points tend to give me a better idea of how long it's going to take to get things done, you know, how many more weeks. And uh, they usually don't get that until, you know, we're we're a couple of weeks in, and then I'm going, okay, see, we average out the last couple of weeks, it looks like we'll get these things done. Do you then, on those that you give them the points, do you bill by point or do you bill by the hour? I bill by the hour. Okay. But the the points are just a tool to give them velocity. Right. And and so I've used a pivotal tracker to track some of that. Um, I'm starting to play with Redmine and Chili Project a little bit more and see if, see if or how I can do some of that stuff with those, with that, those systems. But, uh, yeah. Since it gives them uh, a velocity, then they can look at it and say, okay, well, uh, given this deadline, then I can move things up and down, and then I encourage them to reorder things in the project management system so that, you know, they get done on time. And that works well for both fixed bids and uh, hourly projects. But, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bill by the hour or, you know, unless it's a fixed bid, obviously. And I, that's actually interesting because you could, you could technically have a fixed bid where you bill by the point. Like each point is a hundred dollars. And then, you know, because it's, they're semi associated with hours, but they're not. So you could mm-hmm. say like this project is a thousand points and therefore it costs what $10,000 or whatever. That's, I don't know. I wouldn't do it, but I also don't like points. So yeah. The, the interesting thing about the points is for me, the points are represent how complicated or difficult the story is. And so it is kind of an interesting way to think about it. Simply because, you know, the the harder or more complicated stories are going to cost them more. I don't know. It, hourly or hours per hour or per project are things that people can easily wrap their head around because it's a, it's a unit of measure that they're familiar with. Yeah, that's exactly why I don't do points because as a consultant, I bill most of the time by the hour. 
I want to show them in hours and so they can directly translate to dollars. Having points is an abstraction that's added on that makes it harder for them to see the actual cost of a feature. Yeah. I think um, it also provide, provides them a context for valuing your time too. So if they know that something is not a quick and easy change, uh, they can start, especially if it's somebody that hasn't worked with a consultant before, it kind of gives them that, that context for um, understanding that some things are more complicated and there, you know, there's no easy way to assume how long things are going to take. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's the other thing to think about is also it's time in cost, like, you know, this much per hour, but it's also calendar time. I mean, if, if you give an estimate that is, you know, 40 hours, if you kind of think about it, that's about a week of calendar time. Like they can't expect to demo that feature tomorrow. Um, but points, it's kind of a bit harder because of that abstraction. Yeah, you usually need a little bit of lead time before you can really make the points mean anything. You know, we're we're pretty consistently around 10 points a week. So, you've got 30 points before you get to this feature that you say you need next week. So, uh you have to realize that if we're going in order of what you've got here, then it's going to be 3 weeks out, not 1 week out. So, you've got to rearrange your priorities so that we can get to it. Anyway, I think that's a conversation for another day. Are, are there any other aspects of fixed bids that we want to uh, talk about or bang on? Um, one that I, I frequently use is I'll do a fixed bid for a prototype. Like they have an idea that's going to be rough. It's not going to go into production. Um, do a fixed bid and it's mostly an exploration. And that lets the client kind of keep the exploration cost really, you know, they know what it's going to be. And then sometimes it might be a, a fixed bid for the first phase of the project because most of the time the first phase is a bit of setup and you're building new stuff so it's actually it goes pretty quick everyone enjoys that phase and then after that I tend to transition into the hourly because it's at that point it's in production it's more maintenance type stuff and you're going to run into a lot of the the legacy code or the legacy problems and so I kind of have a transition to start something as a fixed and then slowly turn it into an hourly for the the regular maintenance type work. When you do that, do you time box the prototype or the setup to a certain amount of time? Or do you just, as long as it takes, it takes or what? Yeah, I would internally, like I would, you know, based on how I work in Rails and how I, you know, how this stuff goes for me, I would know, you know, it takes this much time to do a cred section and this prototype needs three cred sections plus this kind of technical bit, which is why we're prototyping it. So I would, you know, do my own internal estimates and then use that for the fixed bid. If it was an actual hourly contract, like say they were, you know, they wanted a, the prototype as hourly, uh, we would time box it. We would say, you know, you have 10 hours to prototype this, get as far as you can, leave an hour at the end to kind of summarize your results and present it to everyone. Mm -hmm. One thing that I don't know if we talked about with fixed bids is how do you come up with what you bid? Do you estimate the number of hours you're going to take and then pad it? Or do you go with however much you think the customer is willing to pay, even if it's a whole lot more than what your hourly estimate would be? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Uh, get a 20-sided dice, roll it three times, multiply each one, and then add uh, three zeros to the end. And that's that's pretty close. <laughs> it works good for me. Is that the number of hit points you get in D&D? &D? Yeah, but yeah, I don't think... It, anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, I, what I do, I estimate how long it's going to take, and then I kind of say confidence, like, okay, simple cred system, not very many fields, not going to take that long, more complex cred system, lots of associations, a lot of nested, um, you know, stuff like that, like that's going to take longer. Basically, I get all that, I total it up. And that's kind of my best case first run gut estimate. 
and then I'll pad it, you know, depending on how much the project is. Like if there's, if it's going to be a week, it's going to get padded a little. If it's going to be four weeks, there's more time there. It's going to need to get padded more to account for more mm-hmm. areas that unknown stuff's going to come in. And, you know, just kind of play with that and try to figure out like, okay, this is the final number, like a gut check. Does that feel about right based on my previous experience? Jeff, Ash, do you do anything different? Uh, like I said, I don't really do fixed biz, but I think that that makes sense. I think that there are a couple factors like, uh, have you worked on this type of project before? Have you worked with this client before? Uh, because I find that some clients that I haven't, that I haven't worked with before, the part of the project that ends up being a little bit bigger than I expected tends to be project management and like client management and kind of walking them through how things work or walking them through processes if they're not familiar with them. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think it makes most the most sense to kind of give your uh, highest estimate for each item and then going from there. Oh, yeah, I've got the project management. That's a big part. I, yes. I add that as like its own little line item of, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent or a chunk of hours. And yeah. then I add padding on top of that. I forgot about that part. It, that's an easy one to forget, too, because, you know, you're focused on what is it going to take to solve this problem and you forget about what is it going to take to solve this problem and interface with the customer enough to get it right. Yeah, especially if you're talking about uh, then teaching a team to use whatever it is afterwards. And you, it's really hard to judge what people's skill level is or level of understanding is before you actually do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I... I with new clients, I always add extra time in to the estimate for project management above what I would expect. Yep. What about you, Jeff? Anything to add? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I think I fall in line pretty much with what Ash is saying. And any estimates I have had to provide for an hourly basis or more, just to give the client an uh, idea of what maybe the scope of the work might be. But I've never been. I've never been held to an estimate that I can think of in recent history. Now, I have tried once. There's, uh, again, Alan Weiss, but uh, when you're going to bid sort of the fixed bid product or project, I mean, he talks about the three levels, and it's like the bare bones. You have to be an idiot to take the lowest price, and then the middle is what you actually want people to do, and then the high end is like all the bells and whistles plus everything else type thing. And I know that doesn't answer the scope question. Oh, the option price. Or the, right. the risk question. But yes, yeah, so the option. So if if you're going to bid something and so you've you've done your discovery and you have everything estimated out and you have the priorities high to low, and then you can say, Well, you draw some line and here's what we here's what we said is good enough and that's the middle price and then everything is the top option and if we cut some corners here and there here's sort of the low option and you're shooting for them to pick the middle and then occasionally you'll get some people that always go high and will pick the highest thing yep yeah i like that um the only thing that um that worries me about option pricing is the it, it becoming a la carte where they're kind of trying to pick and choose what things to kind of like hit the prices right like perfect price and sometimes the product ends up suffering on the other end because there are things that because they're focusing specifically on price and not on value that something gets missed and i i would rather them pay more and be you know 10 times happier than you know pay a little bit less and be 10 times less happy 
yeah, whenever I do option pricing, it's always you have A, which is bare bones, A plus B, which is, you know, bare bones plus maybe some automation and stuff that you're wanting. And then A plus B plus C, which is even more. And I, I, I've tried the a la carte and it's never, I've always would have to pad each item individually a lot to account for just the internal dependencies. Like you might need A and B in order for C to work, but if they don't pick B, you have to build half of the B anyways. And so it's like, you know, you just want to bang your head on the table to try to figure out how to make that work. So I do, you know, I give the options and most of the time, actually, the client comes back, back and say, like, I want A and I want C. You don't have an option for that. Can you give me a, a new quote with that? And that I can actually go back and do, redo the option pricing to kind of make A plus B be the second item. So yeah, that's, that's something good. I use that on my hourly ones too. Okay. As far as estimates go, I'm, I'm kind of in the same camp as you guys. You know, how long will it take? How confident, how confident am I? How much padding do I have to add? Are there any other aspects of fixed bids that we need to hit before we go to the picks? I mean, we've mentioned it before. If if a client's asking for a fixed bid, don't be afraid to dig into why. Most of the time they want a fixed bid because they want to fix their budget on it. And you can do the same thing with an hourly by putting a cap. So instead of a fixed bid of $10,000, you can say, I'm going to do, I can't do math today, um, you know, 100 hours at $100 an hour. And it's, they get the same, like you're, you're only going to spend this much money. Um, and then you, you get to keep the scope kind of variable. And if you can, if that's the only concern they have as a budget, I, I would say that's actually a better thing to do than to do a fixed bid where you have scope fixed and you could, as a consultant, you know, take on a lot of the risks. Yeah. And then as you move along through the project, you just make sure you're communicating. We're approaching our cap. Um, it looks like we're only going to be able to fit in a couple more features, which ones are the critical ones. And yep. then, and then they can decide, well, if they need them all, then they can, you know, extend the contract or, uh, sign a new contract with more hours or something. Yeah. And actually on every invoice on those type of projects, I'll say like, you know, you're at, you're at 35 out of a hundred, you're at 65 out of a hundred. So in addition to my normal, you know, weekly emails or whatever we end up doing, they have it whenever they're starting to pay stuff like, okay, we're, we're running out of this, our budget's running out and they can figure out if they need to renew it or do whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. Sounds terrific. Well, let's get into the picks. Um, Ash, what are your picks? Sure. So I've kind of been on a self-improvement and community improvement uh, bent for the past few months. And I don't know why I haven't picked these things before. Uh, But my first pick is a talk that Joe Kuttner just did like last week at Big Ruby called Healthy Programmer. And it's up on Confreaks. And he's also writing a book that is uh, about basically how we tune our bodies and our lifestyles to be healthier. So uh, the talk is, I want to say like 45 minutes long. It's a really great talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I picked up his book. So I'm, I'm hoping to read that one soon. Um, my Wh- second one. Which conference sorry, was that at? Uh, Big Ruby. Big Ruby. Okay. Yep. Uh, the second one is a app uh, called Duolingo, which is gamified language learning. So right now I'm relearning all of the Spanish that I learned in high school, but have partially forgotten. And they have a really great site and a really awesome iPhone app. And it's the best thing I've seen so far to be able to teach you in like short snippets how to learn a language. And it provides a bunch of different ways to learn a language, which is neat. So I'm learning Spanish now and thinking about doing um, German next, which is kind of neat. My third one is last week I was at uh, Ruby Midwest and I gave a talk on basically like being better people in the community. And 
we started a hashtag called Ruby Thanks. So it's just going out of your way to thank somebody that's helped you in some way, either a project that they've released or, you know, somebody who mentored you or somebody who's basically just made the community better. So the idea is just publicly thank them in a way that's visible to everybody. So it makes them feel good. And uh, it kind of goes back into this, like, we're a big family and we should treat each other like a family and we don't thank each other enough. So it's just Ruby thanks, hashtag Ruby thanks. And then my last one uh, is an Indiegogo campaign for a woman that lives in Nairobi, Kenya, and she got accepted into hacker school. And she's working on raising funds to come to the United States and to buy a new computer and to be able to basically afford coming here and, and doing all the things that she'd like to do while she's here. Um, and it's called Becoming a Better Programmer. And she has a, a neat little story up there. Awesome. That sounds really cool. Eric, what are your picks? So I got one. Uh, it's a blog post article titled Wall Street Journal Adaptation from Present Shock. I guess Present Shock's a book that's coming out or it's already out. I can't tell. But the post talks a lot about how we're kind of looking at time um, right now and kind of you, you should read it. It's really good. But the summary is kind of right now we look at our time, how a computer looks at time in that every second, every minute is you know basically the same as the previous one. And so we're trying to cram in as much work into that. Well, in reality, biologically, physiologically, it's not. I mean, your time at night is different than your time in the morning. And instead of thinking everything is the same, you need to account for that fact. And I think as a freelancer, that's a big deal because um, I've had times where I need to do dev early in the morning because that's when I'm most productive. And late at night, I really can't do dev just because my brain shuts down. And that's I know that by myself. So it's an interesting article talks about, I guess there's some studies that have come out about that sort of topic too, and they're linked in there. So that's my pick for the week. Awesome. All right. My first pick this week is going to be Ruby Heroes. You can go to rubyheroes.com. If you have somebody who is in the Ruby community that you really admire or really want to say thanks to, you can go and nominate them there. I'm kind of having a hard time picking stuff because... <laughs> I, I really don't know where to go. Um, one other one I do want to pick, though, is is a program that I've been using for a long time for IRC chats, and it's called uh, Colloquy. Some of the folks in the Ruby Rogues community actually started a channel for Ruby Rogues on the Freenode um, IRC servers, and so it's been kind of fun to go and see what they're talking about there. So um, anyway, so those are my picks. I'll put links in the show notes. Um, and then... Jeff also had a pick he had to take off. His pick is value-based fees, charge, and get what you're worth. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes Show notes as well. Also, within the next few weeks, I just want to let you know we're going to be changing the name of this show from the Ruby Freelancer Show to just the Freelancer Show. So, uh, you know, if you're interested, you know, we're just changing it to kind of better uh, emphasize the focus of the show, which is freelancing and not really Ruby. So, Anyway, uh, so you'll see a new logo. You'll see a little bit uh, change on the web page. Um, but it's still the same show, and uh, we still got a bunch of stuff going on here. So that's all I've got. So we'll wrap the show up. We'll catch you all next week.